Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Allison Frost, in for Dave Miller. Portland journalist Leah Satilli's new book, When the Moon Turns to Blood, centers on the case of Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. The couple will be on trial next year. An important content warning here, this is a conversation that will include mentions of extreme violence, and so the show this hour may not be appropriate for all listeners. Now's your chance to turn off the radio. Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell are accused of killing two of Vallow's children, whose bodies were found in Daybell's backyard. And there are other suspected murders in their immediate circles as well. But the book is about much more than just true crime. It explores apocalyptic beliefs and the extremism on the fringes of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church. Leah Satilli, welcome to Think Out Loud. Thanks for having me. This is such a compelling read and horrific in so many ways, if if you don't mind me saying that. Uh, When did you first become aware of this story? So the story started for me, I think, when it started for a lot of people, which is in December 2019. I, I saw headlines out of Idaho about two children had gone missing, but also their mother had gone missing and, and and her husband, and people had no idea where they were. But there was a quote in one article that I read that said that people suspected that the mother's cult-like beliefs might lead to some knowledge about finding them. It might lead to their whereabouts. And I knew that the mother and father were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the, the Mormon church. And I wondered if maybe they had some uh, beliefs and uh, that were similar to things that I had covered before in my work. And so that's kind of when it started for me, was just kind kind of a passing interest in wondering about their belief systems and then pretty quickly confirming that, that they did. And that's kind of where my reporting began. And we'll talk much more about this uh, in the conversation, but you're not saying, and you did not find that the church itself is a cult, but the, those extremist, religious extremist beliefs could be considered a cult. Very separate. Absolutely. Very separate, and that's part of the book. There's this tension between the mainstream church and these extreme religious beliefs. Um, so you just mentioned this just briefly, that these are the kinds of stories that you've covered before or similar to the kinds of things that you've covered before. What do you think draws you to these dark, extreme stories, if I can sum it up very broadly? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, it, and it's a funny question in a way because I started my career you know, almost 20 years ago as a music journalist. And so how I sort of arrived at specializing and reporting on political and religious extremism, specifically in the Western United States, is kind of a, an interesting ride. And it sort of started for me when um, we had the takeover here in Oregon in 2016 of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. Mm. And, and really kind of understanding the political moment that those were uh, kind of of pre- that that takeover was predicting in a way, but also, um, you know, I think where the commonality is is that my work is is very interested in people who are at the fringes of society. You know, when I started, that was people, you know, on the fringes of the alternative music scene and that sort of thing. But it's translated into kind of a, a me realizing that I have kind of a keenness for for cultures that are on the outs with mainstream society and and figures who are either ostracizing themselves from society or they feel that society has pushed them away. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's kind of how it it works for me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I do want to get into the story itself and the facts behind the story that, that you found. Before we get into those details, can you just give us a sense of the range of sources, the kinds of reporting? Because you spent at least two years on this, and and it's it reads like a, a it reads like um, kind of a novel. It's sort of an omniscient, you know, an omniscient view almost, uh, except for the you know once or twice or three times when you say I couldn't get an answer to this because no one called me back, or you know they refused comment, sure. or things like that. Um, so yeah, can you just give me a scope, a range of the reporting sources? Yeah, so I mean, I'm a I'm a, a freelance journalist, so this often means that I am the last person to arrive to a story, and that was certainly the case with this. You know, when when this whole story of Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell and the missing children came around, you know, it was being reported by 
you know, uh, CNN and Fox News and Nancy Grace and mm-hmm. Dateline. And so by the time, you know, this me, this person from, you know, this one person comes along and says, hey, I want to talk to people. They were all either tapped out on, on the media um, or just, you know, uh, had signed agreements to not talk to other journalists. So what I did was I, I knew that I wanted to work on this story and I knew that I could see something in the story that all those other people were missing, which was its connection to modern American extremism. And so I started just reporting through documents. I have a, a huge love for public public records laws and started um, building out a timeline based on what was publicly available to journalists like myself, you know, body cam footage, police reports, police interviews, and things like that. And then I started cross-referencing it with what information was out there specifically by Chad Daybell. He's a prolific writer of books. So I started reading all of his books and kind of trying to understand his escalating paranoia and conspiracism and belief system over time and how that um, kind of intersected with with this specific story. So, yeah, it was a lot of kind of on the ground uh, shoe leather reporting. <laughs> yeah. Well, we want to. I want to get back into um, Chad Daybell uh, in, later in the conversation, but both of these people. Um, you know, are accused of just horrific crimes. Um, As a reminder, it was Lori Vallow's children who were found uh, burned and cut up. Um, When we're trying to understand how something like this could have happened, how someone could do something so horrible, a lot of times the first place that we go is their childhood. Um, So, what did you find in terms of Lori's childhood? Not to not to say that anything really explains this, but there are some factors that you found. Yeah, I mean, what I found was a, a young woman who grew up in a pretty traditional LDS home in that she was going to school, uh, normal public school, but she was also attending uh, specific LDS Uh, seminary classes before she went to school every day. And that was going on for a long time. And I found a a large family that was very interested and embedded in the LDS church. But what really kind of raised my antennas in, in the kind of extremism realm was that I found out that her parents stopped paying their federal income taxes when she was in high school. And they not only stopped paying them, they went, they were in and out of court arguing about why Americans should not have to pay taxes. And this is, you know, obviously something that has come up a ton in my work in far-right extremism, people who are tax protesters or sovereign citizens Mm -hmm. and have these anti-government belief systems. But most notably, I found that her father in 2020, when the children were still missing and no one knew where they were, he published a book on, on Amazon about how the American public can dismantle the IRS and why they should. And it was just a classic bit of sovereign citizen literature. And so what it told me was that, you know, Lori Vallow had this upbringing that sort of firmly placed her family at the fringes of the LDS church. None of these are, these beliefs are commonly held, but they are held within this sort of fringe subculture of the church that is anti-government and has a lot of these conspiratorial ideas. Yeah, sort of raised in this culture of fringe, not necessarily the fringe, the religious fringe. How how about for Chad? What did you find at Chad Daybell? What did you find in terms of his, he had these near-death obsessions uh, with near-death experiences, having claimed to have one himself. Um, Mm -hmm. So how did you find that that and, and other aspects of his childhood set him up? Yeah, again, Chad Daybell grew up, you know, in this very traditional LDS home. He grew up kind of in in the bosom of the LDS church in um, in the Provo area, which is where Brigham Young University is. And um, it, it just very, you know, very uh, traditional Mormon guy by all standards. But at a certain point, he says that he had this near-death experience when he went cliff diving and hit the water. And he believes that he saw beyond the veil And in his writing, he talks about how afterwards he had this sort of, you know, unexplainable interest in these authors who write uh, uh, kind of in this fringe culture that we're talking about. They write about the kind of weaving of the Constitution and the LDS belief systems together. And I found that to be very interesting that that someone could have this uh, supposed near-death experience and then afterwards they come out of it a new person 
firmly mm-hmm. embedded in this fringe part of the church. You know, and he goes on to say that he had another near-death experience after that that only bolstered this belief system. And um, this is this becomes like a very notable part of Chad Daybell's life. It signals him going from a very mainstream guy to this very fringe subculture of the church that um, exists within, you know, all of America, but specifically in the Mountain West. Yeah, and of course there's, you know, no way to get into his head and see, did he have a near-death experience? But you note that the second near-death experience, no one remembers him saying anything about it. Um, That there were other people there at the incident and, you know, it was involving the ocean and something traumatic and he hit his head and he went to the hospital, but... But he, but people, his brother, I believe, is what you quoted yes. him saying, is like, he never said that. You know, no one ever. Yeah, that it was surprising it, for them to learn. Yeah, well. that it was, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and of course, there's just, there's so much of that. Um, we couldn't talk about all of the different evidence <laughs> that you dig up and cite. When did Chad then say that he experienced the voice? He had a voice that would speak to him. When did that start for him? It seemed to start after these near-death experiences that there's kind of this uh, voice that he refers to that guides him through life and in making decisions big and small. And I want to be really clear that I think that a lot of people, you know, will say, you know, I I felt uh, a strong compulsion to Mm. something and so I made a decision in my life. And that's not, not, I'm not saying that's strange at all, but what Daybell does is throughout all of his writing, his memoirs, in his fictional books, in his blogs, he will commonly sort of explain something by saying that this sort of otherworldly, beyond the veil source points him in a direction and says, you you should, you know, not apply to grad school or you should, you know, do, do this or not that. And most notably in uh, around 2015, he, the voice spoke to him and said that he needed to uproot his family from the Salt Lake Valley and move north to Rexburg, Idaho, because he believed that this was going to be the place where the LDS people would be saved in the end times. Mm. And so he actually did do that. And um, that was something he uprooted his, his very large family uh, and moved them north. Yeah, wife and five kids, right? I mm-hmm. mean, this is not an easy task. Right. You mentioned this earlier, but uh, he wrote a huge body of work, um, fiction works that later he claimed that were visions, um, and as you said, a memoir. And it sounds like you read, if not all of them, a whole, whole bunch of them. Um, and I'm wondering, what was it like to just be immersed in that world as you read book after book after book? I think that it started as an exercise in, you know, I started the reporting on this book in the spring of 2020 when, you know, COVID was just surging and we were all locked down and everyone was looking for a project. And this was sort of the project that I chose. And, and I, you know, to, to be fair, I, I really thought I'll read one book. It probably won't lead me anywhere. But, you know, it, it did. I mean, this, this book that we're t- discussing is an exercise in that, in that what I started to see was his fictional books were laden with these conspiracy theories that I had seen kind of spouted about by the far right for many years. But I also saw that he had written two memoirs, one about this these near-death experiences and the impact on him as a person, but also one about his work as a grave digger and that he um, kind of had this sort of jokey uh, approach to, to death. And um, and uh, it was very strange. It, it made me, you know, strange characters are not something that deters me. Um, it, it, I just could was became kind of fascinated. Like, who is this guy? And I started to understand that he had gained quite a bit of celebrity around his writings, uh, both nonfictional and fictional, and that people really started to think of him as a visionary. And, and that was very interesting for me. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, we're talking to the author and investigative reporter Leah Satilli on her new book, When the Moon Turns to Blood. I want to talk about the title. That, When the Moon Turns to Blood, is not it's it, you didn't make it up. Let's say that um, it right. has multiple sources. Can you tell us a little more about that image? Yeah. So a key part of this book that that you know readers will see very early on is is an understanding of the Book of Revelation in the Bible, and um, that the Book of Revelation is sort of this surrealistic bit of of the Bible that is very important to the LDS Church. It's it's kind of in the name. This is about the end times and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And um, that in the name, Latter-day Saints, that's, that's what that is a reference to. 
with the book of Revelation, there's kind of all these horrors that are spelled out of what would happen mm-hmm. at the end of the world, you know, stars dropping out of the sky and things like that. And the moon turning red and, and kind of dripping with blood. It's this really grotesque mm-hmm. image. And, um, and it was very, very important that specifically to the founder and prophet of the LDS church, Joseph Smith, he kind of issued a version of his own that mimicked a lot of these same images um, that was foundational to the to the church starting. So I wanted to kind of make a direct reference to this kind of uh, really horrific story, if you take it literally, and um, kind of put that right at the front. This is grounded in this this book of scripture that is very important. Yeah, before we get a little further in the tension between the mainstream LDS church and these and these fringes that Chad, um, you know, helped establish and develop, you dedicate the, the book for believers. What did you mm-hmm. have in, what did you have in mind when you did that? No, I'm glad you asked. I I um I wanted to make a really big distinction here that that it is clear to me that, you know, there's something really pure and beautiful I think about being a faithful person that um that that's that's so deep and personal to people and in my years of reporting on specifically on religious extremism I found that one of the darkest things that I've confronted is this ability and, and and willingness to manipulate people's religious beliefs for people's own personal ends. So in a way, I wanted to kind of dedicate to the book to people who are faithful, who are, you know, believers in some kind of, you know, religious doctrine and acknowledge that this is, you know, um, maybe a piece of uh, of literature that will help people be aware that that is a possibility, um, but but really kind of just trying to set the state and stage and acknowledge like that that is something that I I, I respect and um, you know that this is this is about the manipulation of that. I think you make a really good distinction between the mainstream LDS church and these really really fringe beliefs, and I get that this could have happened on the fringes of any religion, any church. Did you also intend for that to come through as well? I think that I did want to, um, you know, I have an interest in in this this kind of newborn religion that is Mormonism. It's really not that old, and, it, and it's American-born, and I think that that's so much of my work is kind of interrogating the culture of America and what, you know, what has come out of this place. So, so you know, I do think, yeah, it, can, it could happen on the fringes of any religion, but why this one specifically? And mm. how does that tie to kind of a fringe history that has existed for quite some time within the very young LDS church? Well, would you just remind us for people who may not be familiar or is on the fringes of their consciousness as far as, yeah, it's a more recent church, but can you just give us the outline? Yeah, so the LDS Church started in the mid-1800s. Um, it, it, it's got this very unique uh, origin story in that a, a young man in upstate New York claimed that he had uh, seen an, an angel in his bedroom, and that angel instructed him to go unearth some golden plates from a nearby forest. And on those golden plates was the uh, the, the word of God. And, but he was the only person to ever see these plates, and he was the person who, who supposedly translated them. And that message that he said was on those became the Book of Mormon. And it's very interesting because Joseph Smith himself was something of a, you know, a treasure hunter and a scryer and kind of interested in these um, these kind of activities. And so that you feel that infused sort of in the beginning of the church. You know, the long and short of it from there is, is that he become very he became very controversial. Um, he, he sort of assembled the church. It got a lot of blowback from people who were very, um, you know, offended by this new religion starting. He moved all around the country at the time trying to find a place that he could kind of create a very, you know, Mormon-specific city or civilization in a way. Um, He was killed by a mob in Illinois, and um, 
that that kind of created this this uh, culture within the LDS church that people were willing to kill them for their beliefs. And that could either scare you away or it could make you kind of double down on the belief system. And um, it was shortly thereafter that one of Joseph Smith's acolytes, Brigham Young, moved the LDS people westward to what was outside of the United States, but is now considered Utah. And Mm. so, you know, I think a lot of that story is really important to understanding that people who are Mormon remember this very recent Mm. history of what happened to them and feeling like they were supposed to be protected by the Constitution to have freedom to practice whatever religion they wanted. And that, in fact, in in some characterizations, they feel it went the other way, Mm -hmm. that they were oppressed. And um, so I think that that's, you know, that's very fresh. And, and for some people, that's very real. And in some families, you'll hear people really kind of make sure that that story is kept alive. Don't ever forget mm-hmm. that they came for us and they could come for you again. So in some ways, you know, the, their paranoia um, or their caution or this attitude that you've described isn't for nothing. I mean, it, it is very much grounded um, in persecution. Um, if 100%, one yeah. That, that, yeah. Um, and the sort of, if someone is coming to kill you, there's that, that there's kind of an implied self-defense if you're always ready for an attack. Right, right. You know, and this is something that I feel like I've seen a lot in my work on the sort of more militant far-right group, specifically with the Bundy family. You know, I made a podcast that OPB helped put out called Bundyville a few years ago. And um, and, and part of that was going and asking the Bundy family specifically, do you believe, you know, that is, is your religious belief system, this is a Mormon family, has that helped lead to your confrontations with the government? And they just point blank said, absolutely, yes. So, mm-hmm. you know, I thought that that was very interesting that they were not afraid to say, you know, uh, what happened to our us, what happened to our people um, is still very important to us and it informs everything we believe about the government and what could happen in the future. Mm. One of the other things that you explore is, you know, Chad Daybell's and um, Lori Vallow's relationship and what they both believed and how they came together. And it's unclear who was the leader. Uh, And maybe that's not exactly the right question, but what did you come out with in terms of you know, who who seemed to be driving the bus? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I still don't know. And I think that that um, is kind of what's part of, you know, taken at a distance of the horrific nature of what happened here. I think that's part of one of the things that fascinated me about the case was that I was always trying to figure out who was who was leading who. And, you know, for a while I thought, you know, based on Chad Dable's writings and the fact that he had this sort of, there was an economic benefit in him selling books that were laden with conspiracies and his ideology that he was probably leading things. But then I started to dig into Lori Vallow's history and saw that she had some pretty radical beliefs that and and there was, you know, kind of a lot of death happening around her um, that that happened maybe before she even met Chad Daybell. So Mm -hmm. a lot of this was trying to understand the intersection of how two people could have these belief systems that were very similar and what circumstances could possibly allow them to meet each other. You know, Chad lived in Idaho. Lori lived in Arizona but they were able to meet. And, and so that's a lot of what the book gets into is what the culture is that that kind of fostered a, a place for these two people to, to encounter each other. And just a quick note, the death that you uh, referred to connected to Lori was the death of her ex, one of her ex-husbands. Right. So it wasn't, yeah, it, it was a significant death. Let's get into a little bit about what those beliefs are. We referenced a lot of, you know, fringe beliefs, um, but... Lori, just taking Lori first, uh, she becomes in her own mind and convinces those who she draws in that she's a kind of goddess, which of course, uh, which we haven't talked about, but the structure of the Mormon church and many others, it should be said, is very hierarchical and male dominated. Absolutely. Do you think that that was part of why she spun out in that way? And, And tell us a little bit more about what that meant, what her being a goddess, what that meant. 
Yeah, I think that it's it's it, it's in the things that I have reported on. I mean, I found that it seemed that Lori had a real need for power in her life. That you know she has now been married five times, and all of these marriages ended very poorly. And in the case of her fourth husband, and in and in, in him dying and him being murdered. Um, and and so I think that, that she was really looking for power. I think she had a very clear track record of, of craving attention. Um, you know, she was on Wheel of Fortune. She was someone who modeled. She was a beauty queen. She wanted to be seen and respected. But she was also an extremely faithful woman. There was nothing more important to her than her faith. And so I think she was sort of jockeying for some kind of power within the church. She started telling people that she was the goddess, that she was a warrior, um, and, and eventually that she was one of the leaders of the 144,000, which is a reference to the book of Revelation and this belief that there will be this kind of chosen people called the 144,000 that will survive the horrors of, of the end of the world and kind of, you know, lead God's kingdom in, into the future. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. And all of this is, is um, manipulation of a twisting of LDS beliefs into something that could be more beneficial for her. And so, yeah, she re- you really paint a portrait of her as an extreme narcissist, for one thing. Um, and she also, as you know, began to believe or, or eventually believed that she could control the elements mm-hmm. in addition to her, yeah, one of her um, friends that she did that with quite a bit and tried to bring about the deaths of various people just psychically or spiritually. Yeah, she thought she could control the weather. She thought she could assess people for whether they were a light spirit or a dark spirit. She started referring to people who had gone dark by different names. So she stopped calling her husband, her former husband, his name was Charles. She started calling him Ned Schneider. You know, these kind of really bonkers things that in a way you could see them as a little bit humorous. But when you see where this went, it's like, this very um, dark spiraling of someone dehumanizing people around her that were questioning her mm-hmm. and, and wanting to just get those people out of the way. We have to take a short break. We'll have more with Leah Satilli on her new book, When the Moon Turns to Blood, in just a moment. From the Gert Boyle studio, this is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Allison Frost. If you're just tuning in, we're talking to the writer and investigative reporter, Leah Satilli, on her new book, When the Moon Turns to Blood. It's about a string of murders and the political and religious extremism behind them. We were talking just now about this extreme delusional, if you can call it that, uh, belief system uh, of Lori Vallow, and we'll get into Chad Daybell more, but many people, I think, including myself, at one point just thought that these people have, you know, really serious mental illness um, with these with these beliefs, especially when they lead to killing, you know, killing your children or killing other people, allegedly. So what's wrong with the explanation that Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell were just, you know, psychopaths, mentally ill, delusional? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that that part of it, um, part of my reporting was kind of really trying to answer that. You know, is there some kind of history of, of uh, you know, mental illness that needs to be considered here more seriously? Because so many people I talked to said this. You know, I I don't know why you care so much. This is just, these are just sociopaths. Um, on one, you know, as a reporter, I could never find evidence of that. No one could ever tell me specifically that they knew that there was some kind of diagnosis or a family history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's really important, that without that, we don't, we don't know. Now, of course, that could be something that is at play, but I think what that does is it, it, it casts off the, uh, that these ideas that Lori and Chad had, you know, with some variation, you know, zombies, I don't think has come up before in, in the extreme fringes of the LDS church, and it certainly did here. But with, with some variation, they actually mimic beliefs that are held by a fringe of the church, by, but by a lot of people. And, and, I, and I talk in the book about a number of instances where people have taken beliefs and committed violence with those. And I think that this firmly nestles Chad and Lori into that violent 
fringe history of the church that has been something that has really been, you know, kind of a cancer to the mainstream church Mm. and that they've tried to kind of separate themselves from it. But, you know, I talk quite a bit at the end of the book about how that's kind of just not enough because there are some beliefs that, um, that are really nurtured. I think there are some flaws in a way, if I could say that, in, within the LDS belief system that kind of allow for this creative manipulation of, mm-hmm. of, of, of what the church says is, is real and what's not. And it can be difficult for people to make distinctions between those. And, and so, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, it would be the easy thing to say, crazy people don't need to worry about it. But I think that it speaks to something that's um, very interesting and, and very kind of scary about um, this inability by the mainstream church to sever itself from the more extreme members. Why do you think that is? You referred to the openings that make it uh, a little bit more likely, perhaps, that or, or, or provide a more fertile ground for this type of misinterpretation. What Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, two things. Um, I think that one of those is, is something that makes the LDS faith very interesting, is that it allows people to receive personal revelation. So this is kind of something mm-hmm. we were talking about with the voice earlier, that, that you can receive, you can have a very, you know, uh, personal and direct relationship with God, and 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 they might speak to you in a way. Um, where the Elias Church makes distinctions is that it's perfectly fine to be guided by the by the by by God, by God. Mm-hmm. but when you start to take those ideas out the front door and kind of try and say, "I received a message, I want to spread that mes- message," that is something the church is very clear is inappropriate. Um, so I think that. That's something that I talk about in the book that, you know, if you believe that God told you that the world is going to end, you may flout the direction of the leaders of the church and say, you know, I I feel this is real enough. I want to share it Mm -hmm. with people. And I think part of that is at play here. The other thing is that there is something that many people know about, about the Mormon church, which is that there is a preparedness doctrine that, you know, a lot of LDS families are very large. And, um, you know, given the history of the church, the the church leadership encourages people to be prepared for times of hardship. Um, They're very specific. This could be an earthquake. This could be a loss of a job or, you know, um, a, a loss of power or water. So people are encouraged to kind of stock up to make sure that they're very self-sufficient they don't have to depend on anyone, and they can also take care of these large families. But as in all things, there are people who take that preparedness doctrine to the extremes. And Chad and Lori really catered to a lot of those people who who feel they need to prep because the world is going to end. Um, you know, the church doesn't ever say, you know, prep up in case the world ends. It's like in case of a storm. But, you know, people say, yeah, yeah, they mean, the, you know, what they're not saying, but they're saying is that the world might be ending. So so I think that those two things are, are two aspects that really kind of... Um, kind of beget these these extreme people who take the beliefs in a new extreme unsanctioned direction. And one of the things also that you talk about that they said that they're prepared for um, is being attacked, like literally being attacked from foreign aggressors and also from mm-hmm. those in the liberal cities, um, attacks on them. So it really is quite a wide range. Yeah, and those things specifically are, you know, some of the language that that I would see in the kind of conspiratorial circles that Chad Daywell ran in were, you know, they didn't have anything to do with the LDS faith. These are like very common anti-government or or conspiracy theories that have been around in the West and beyond for a very long time. Fear of the new world order, fear of the United Nations coming in to take over and um, and that sort of thing. So, So there's, you know, there's kind of this like Mormon twist on this, but a lot of these things are are, are really common in these other circles. Yeah, that observed. it's like the secular meets the religious in this perfect Venn diagram in that way. I want to follow up on something else that you mentioned, the continual... Uh, trying of the church to separate um, themselves from from this, despite the opening that this personal revelation doctrine uh, provides. Uh, there, Chad Daybell was uh, excommunicated, right? And there, there have been other um, excommunications as well. 
Uh, do those tend to have the effect that one might think they do? Well, I think in this case, I think anybody who I have observed was an acolyte of Chad Daybell's, they're so horrified by what happened that, that yeah, that, that's, it's, it's had that effect that he was wrong. Mm. But there are many, many other examples of, of people who have preached m- similar things as Daybell um, who have been excommunicated. And they've said, fine, you know, excommunicate me. I know that I have the true word of God, that I am the true church. And, and people People will follow that. So the Elias Church has this really long, um, you know, for being such a young faith in America, uh, has a big history of splinter groups where people say, yeah, no, the, the, the church leadership is wrong on this one. Listen to what I have to say. And of course, not all of those who are excommunicated actually allegedly committed murder. So that's another pretty, of course, pretty, yeah. pretty strong difference. How would you describe the LDS's church relationship with fringe members, like some of them that you've referred to, uh, like those on Avow, which is another voice of warning forum? Yeah, I think uh, you know a big part of this book was me getting into the this this group, another voice of warning. It's a, a kind of a message board that's run by somebody outside of Rexburg, Idaho, and that really kind of caters to these things we've been talking about: people who believe in near death experiences and maybe um, are willing to entertain some of the more fringe elements of the church, but are still themselves church members. There's a lot of talk you know, prepping and and things like we've been saying, liberals for coming into conservative cities to try and take over. Um, I think that, that the church is very aware that these groups exist. And um, specifically, I, I discussed at one point that this uh, PowerPoint presentation kind of leaked out of, of the church hierarchy talking about things that were real threats to the faith. And one of those was a concern that people within the church had a real desire to to level up, to kind of take their faith to the next level and mm. become, you know, a, a, a believer in, in a new way that was kind of not within these boundaries that the, the mainstream church is, is talking about. So one of those things they were concerned about was uh, people claiming to be prophets and people claiming to kind of have near-death experiences and this somehow gives them a, a new vision. So I think the church is very aware that these things are there, but you know, there's only so much I think that they can, uh, uh, you know, cram back in the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. And um, I think that when they start excommunicating people, it's when people have been very out about their beliefs, that they're seeing things that should be only reserved for church leadership to see or receiving messages. And that's that's kind of how Daybell got himself mm. excommunicated, I imagine, among other things. Mm-hmm. It's Yeah, that taking the faith to the next level, that is, I think, what really resonated to me in terms of a universal problem, if you will, that permeates, I don't know, I don't know if it's fair to say all religions, all churches, but it's certainly something that I have noticed in in a lot of different stories that have nothing to do with the LDS church. And you do, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about um, as we referred to earlier the you know the other you know murderous consequences of some of these fringe beliefs like you know Jim Jones and the Moonies and you know you you talk about you know five six seven others as well and uh, as a person of faith myself that I, I was raised with the Bible and and many other uh, religious uh, documents um, texts if you will um, it what occurred to me when you were talking about in the book about your disbelief at first that anyone could really believe that that God would tell them to to kill to kill their to kill anyone but especially mm-hmm. to kill their children and what came to me from the old testament i remembered that there was the story of abraham and isaac where god told abraham to kill his son isaac but did not let him go through with it but it was a test of faith uh, so in that way I feel like that was one of the things that I saw reflected, like this is the LDS church, but it has ripples everywhere. 
It's so interesting that you say that. In in since this book has come out, I've heard from many many people who have you know have read it with their different religious perspectives, and and one of the most notable um, sort of chilling things that I I heard from a couple of people who who grew up in very evangelical circles um, were homeschooled kind of off gridders, and one of them shared with me that that she said that she remembered her her mother saying to her because of the Old Testament, you know, I know that if God says I should kill you for our faith, that I should do that. And, um, you know, this person specifically had severed themselves pretty clearly from their mm. family. But but this was just to say it showed me um, that, that them sharing that with me said that this is maybe more... Um, it's more common, I guess. Maybe common mm. isn't the right word, but this is not just relate. This is not just Lori and Chad. That there mm. are people who take things that are, uh, uh, you know, supposed to be instructive lessons, and they and they take them to the nth degree, um, and 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 share with their children that maybe that if God said for them to do anything, they would do it without question, and and how um, how scary that is, and how how sad that was. And this person specifically was saying, you know, in the story of Tylee Ryan, which is Lori's uh, daughter who, who died, um, that, that she thought, you know, that could have been me. And that mm. was just so sad and sobering for me to hear. She died allegedly at the hands of Lori Vallow, her mother, mm-hmm. just to be clear. What are people missing if they only see this story through a true crime lens? I think that they're missing, they're only engaging with the kind of immediate details. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I've been a magazine writer long enough that I can recognize a, a story that's a good narrative, that there's, you know, kind of, it's crazy, you know, it develops, it's, uh, um, you know, there is a very interesting and wild tale here. But I think to only see it for the boundaries of what happened between 2019 and 2020 and now will play out in court is is um, failing to understand that there's just uh, that these that these ideas didn't just come from Lori and Chad, that they were part of a history and a culture and something that is really scary. I mean, that this violence that has existed at the very fringes of the church you know, we're in a time of a lot of uncertainty politically, you know, religiously, in every part of American life is this sort of fear and paranoia. What's next? And I think when there are people who are a part of a of a history of of folks who are always waiting for the end, that that this could be you know, not necessarily a predictor, but I think that this, you know, it's, it, we, it, it would behoove all of us to know that there are people who are very scared and very paranoid. And when you wrap that up in religion, that can have really, really horrible consequences. So much of this coverage of the case has focused on Lori. Of course, you have definitely focused on both, um, but in the mainstream media. But she and Chad are being tried together. Uh, how significant is that? I think it's really significant. I think in a case like this, you know, the, both of these individuals have been in jail for two years. Um, they were actually together, married for a very short period of time before going to jail. So you would, you know, in a lot of cases, I think people would think that one of them would turn on the other and say, you know, mm. this person made me kill my kids or this, you know, not, none of that has happened. Um, they are very firmly together. Uh, Lori has been very clear with the court. Sometimes she will say no, nothing, but she ha- has had her attorneys be very clear that she must be referred to as Lori Daybell, mm. not Lori Vallow. And she appeared in court a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was a very strange hearing for a lot of reasons, but she was all smiles and um, very uh, excited to kind of pose for the cameras. She also had a, um, a hair tie, like that you would put a ponytail, your hair in a ponytail, around her wedding ring finger. Mm. And, you know, the media really took that as a message from Lori to everyone that she is standing with Chad in, in this case. And they are uh, they are specifically charged with what? 
They're charged with a lot of things, among them conspiracy to commit murder of both both of Lori's children, her daughter, Tylee, and her son, JJ, but also conspiracy to commit murder of Tammy Daybell, which was Chad's wife of 29 years, and she died very suddenly in October of 2019. Um, there's also grand theft charges there that that uh, that Lori and Chad were using the money, the Social Security and the insurance money after their deaths. How significant is the hearing that happened recently where Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell's lawyers filed a motion saying that the conspiracy charges were confusing? It's really notable. So right now, Chad and Lori are uh, headed toward a trial in January where they they will stand trial together for a number of charges, among them conspiracy to commit murder of the children and conspiracy to commit grand theft to then take their um, social security after their deaths and and use that money. Um, What this hearing was about is that Lori Vallow's lawyers came to the judge in, in this rural county in Idaho and said that the conspiracy to commit murder and grand theft is very confusing, that, that, that those are two things being linked together by that word and, and that could really uh, confuse a jury because conspiracy to commit murder and conspiracy to commit grand theft have very different mm-hmm. penalties associated with them. So th- the judge is considering right now sending the entire indictment back to the grand jury to reframe. And I think that you know it's important to say that Lori and Chad are facing the death penalty in Idaho. So I think there is just a concerted effort to be very clear going into that, knowing that this is a very serious thing that they are on trial for and the consequences are the most serious. So they want to go into that, making sure that this can't go back on appeal or anything like that in the future. Do you have plans to cover this trial next year? Absolutely. I think that there are many, many questions that I couldn't answer that I think will only be answered in court. Um, uh, what was the cause of death for for Chad Daybell's wife, Tammy? That's something that's been very secretly guarded by by the authorities there in Idaho. Um, you know, and, and, and will we get some kind of conclusion to your earlier question of who was leading who here? Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's something that can only come out in evidence that hasn't been seen by members of the media like myself. So, yeah, absolutely, I plan to. Who else is being charged? We haven't talked about that at all because there were allegedly the crimes committed by other people, including murder. Well, no one else is being charged right now. And I think that that says to me that a lot of people who had knowledge of what Chad and Lori were doing and planning to do, that they have cooperated in some way with with the, the authorities. So I think one thing that is really important to note here is that Lori will also in some capacity face charges in Arizona for the death of her fourth husband, Charles Vallow, mm. who was shot and killed by Lori Vallow's brother. You know, there are so many twists and turns to this case. There's a, a drive-by shooting that happened in one regard in Arizona that has to do with other people. So there's, there's um, Arizona has been pretty clear that once things have wrapped up for, for Lori, specifically in Idaho, that she will then face mm. some kind of charges in Arizona as well. Okay. Well, aside from what people around them uh, may be facing or, or not facing, what is the f- effect more broadly that you could tell... Um, on their circle of believers, the, 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 that they're being charged with these murders. Uh, what, what effect has that had on their circle of believers? You know, as far as I can tell, it's, it's, you know, it's been, this it has been horrific for people who were close to Chad and Lori, because there were a lot of people that were close to Chad and Lori that really had nothing, no inkling that any of this was going on. So there's a lot of just pain and trauma there. I think that some of the people who were close to Chad and Lori, I have seen some of them being very out and saying that, you know, I was misguided. I was looking for something more. I thought I had some kind of unique uh, perspective on the faith that, you know, we could see things that other people couldn't. And I, and I see now that that was so misguided and, and wrongheaded and dangerous. Mm. And, um, and so there have been a few people who have said things, but I will be, you know, honest with you that I keep tabs on another voice of warning. And that website continues to march on without mm. 
Chad, of course, um, but really fomenting that same paranoia and conspiracy that, that, you know, Chad was now a part of. I want to end with a something that you wrote at the very end. Hopefully this will not be a spoiler. But we've talked about these murders. Your book is, you know, uh, these murders and what is behind them and, and how possible explanations for how this could have happened and how what how these murders what these murders came from but there's an even larger an even larger context uh, that you reference would you mind reading from the end of the epilogue sure So maybe the heart of this story is something much more endemic, a societal numbness to death and violence, a fixation on fear. It felt like the case could be an allegory for the rest of the world, for everything happening right now in this country. There seems to be a sense of doubt that evil can be sitting right in front of us, a belief that moral questions are things only to be considered in a voting booth and not in our everyday lives. When you start to look around, you could see fear everywhere. Fear in politics, fear in policy, fear every time we pull to refresh and a new hell confronts us. It seems like we've collectively decided to laser focus our energy on personal and collective ruin. And the case of Chad and Lori is, in effect, a ripple of that. Leah Satilli, thank you so much for your time and for this book. Thank you for having me. Leah Satilli is a Portland investigative journalist and author of the new book, When the Moon Turns to Blood. Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell, and a story of murder, wild faith, and end times. Satilli also hosted the Bundyville podcast, produced in partnership with OPB and Longreads. That's our show for today. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find audio for our show online at opb.org slash thinkoutloud, and our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. A reminder that you can always get in touch with us if you have a story or topic you think we should cover. Email us at thinkoutloud at opb.org or leave us a voicemail. That number is 503-293-1983. Thanks so much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Allison Frost. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern.